You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. The Danvers Statement summarizes the need for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and serves as an overview of our core beliefs. The statement was prepared by several evangelical leaders at a CBMW meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts in December of 1987. And in this podcast series, we are walking through the Danvers Statement line by line as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. So the Danvers Statement is organized into basically three sections. There's the rationale section that begins it, and then the purpose purposes section, and then the affirmations, which most everybody is familiar with that knows the statement. And what we're going to be doing on this episode is beginning to walk through the rationale uh, that's given at the head of the Danvers Statement. So here is how the Danvers Statement opens up. We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments, which we observe with deep concern. And the first rationale given is this. The widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. Denny, what are the authors of the Danvers Statement getting at there? Yeah, so they they begin with these uh, rationales, and there are 10 of them. And this first one here is going to, it could have been written today, because what what they were observing back in 1987 is uh, similar to what we're dealing with today. Now, the, the problems have changed a little bit. But the problem, but problems are still there, significant ones, significant confusion. Uh, they say the widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. In 1987, the the major threat that they were dealing with was second wave feminism. Basically, that men and women, while they are different biologically. They're interchangeable in terms of the, in terms of their roles in society and the home and everywhere else, and so the whole women can have it all mantra, which was in tension with the reproductive realities of of men and women living together in the economy of the home, and really in the economy of the nation. The feminists were saying, "No, you can um, be totally engaged uh, outside of the home, totally engaged with your family. There's no drop off in either one, no choices that have to be made. And for whatever we want to say about that, that mindset, when you apply it um, to the church, is that basically men and women are interchangeable in their their roles in the home and in the church, which obviously is in tension with what, with what Scripture says. And so they're recognizing there, there's just confusion about this in in the culture and it's it was affecting the way that people thought about these things within the church and within the home now it's interesting they said the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity at the time there wasn't a ton of debate about what a manhood was and what a woman was everybody kind of understood what a man was what a woman was it was what their roles were within society what what's different today is that what they assumed in Danvers could no can no longer be assumed because a lot of people can't say today what a man is or what a woman is. So it's not just confusions about confusion about roles in the church and in the home, but there's confusion about what it even means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And so the, you know, those issues that were also foundational, but assumed in 1987 or things that we clarified in the Nashville statement later, 
Um, but they were dealing with similar issues just in an earlier form. Which is really remarkable if you think about how prescient that statement is. I mean, we're talking 1987, you know, before widespread legalization of gay marriage in this country, before uh, there was really even a hint of a uh, beginning of a transgender movement. We're talking about widespread uncertainty and confusion in culture regarding those differences between masculinity and femininity. I mean, some of the authors, uh, majority of the authors of the Danvers Statement are still living today. Um, that is really a, a prescient observation and and how much more true today, like you said, the confusions just run so much deeper. Absolutely, which really feeds into the second rationale. And I'm just going to read it so that we can um, uh, talk about it. But the second rationale that they cited for Danvers and for the organization was the tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. Now, in 1987, the issues that they were dealing with there within marriage had the, were primarily uh, dealing with or exclusively really talking about heterosexual marriage, the marriage of a man and, and a woman. And nobody was really talking in, in those days about, about gay marriage, but Again, these issues are connected, right? Because once you undermine marriage norms, um, having to in, in heterosexual marriage, um, th that's going to have downstream effects for other marriage norms later. So, in in 1980s, you were living in the um, the aftermath of the legalization of or basically the spread of no fault divorce laws across our country. That's right. Again. In California in 1969 went into effect in 1970, and then you saw these no-fault divorce laws, you know, sort of, um, you know, spread across the country. And no-fault divorce said that you, that you you didn't have to have really a cause, or nobody had to be at fault in the dissolution of any marriage uh, covenant. And so you could eventually you had basically. Um, you could change your spouse like you change your socks. I mean, it, mm. you, you really, there, you, nobody had to be at fault at all. And so what you did was you changed the permanence norm of marriage. And mm. the way people thought about marriage was less in terms of a, a covenant and its permanence, but in terms of a contract that can be renegotiated or ended altogether. And, and sometimes you, you can determine your own terms for the for for a contract. People began thinking about marriage in different ways um, in the aftermath of the sexual revolution, especially with uh, feminism rising in the latter part of the 20th century, and then with no fault divorce, which came along, which really radically altered the permanence norm. So once you begin, uh, society begins really changing those norms. You can't say, okay, well, we'll just change these norms, but none of the other norms, like whether or not the marriage has to consist of a male and a female. Um, that did come later, but it was very much connected to these earlier developments that they were talking about here in the rationale. Which is actually, if you kind of think about uh, the underlying philosophy behind that, you have really a, a prominent individualism asserting itself instead of you know the biblical view of a, a marriage under the loving headship of a husband you now have these two individuals that remain as individuals, not two becoming one, such that there can be these sort of two opposing wills in a marriage that that end up tearing the marriage apart instead of the loving headship and leadership of the husband and the 
uh, you know, the submission of, of the wife to that loving headship, uh, such that the direction of the marriage can continue as one instead of two opposite. And so, yeah, that, that leads to that third rationale that they identify, which they say is the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism with accompanying distortions or neglect of the glad harmony portrayed in scripture between the loving, humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. Yeah. And that, that statement is profound. Um, and sometimes for some people surprising because when it says the glad harmony portrayed in scripture between the loving, humble leadership of the redeemed husband, intelligent, willing, supportive leadership of that leadership by redeemed wives. A lot of people can look at that and they'll say, well, I've read the Bible and that's not what I see everywhere. Well, that's, that's true. There are a lot of examples of people not doing that in the mm-hmm. Bible. Um, you can see Abraham abdicating a loving servant leadership. You can see uh, Sarah even um, not always doing what she she should do. Um, the the point of this statement is is that in Scripture you do have even though you have examples of failures of the of marriage norms, you also have examples of people who were f- faithful at times, even if imperfectly. But you also have apostolic prophetic statements of what God designed marriage to be. And that's what they're pointing at here is that there is an original creation design that determines the shape and the contours of marriage and what the callings of men and women are within the covenant of marriage. And they were recognizing the, the, the founders of CBMW and the drafters of Danvers were recognizing in this rationale that those norms were just becoming completely unraveled in Western culture and especially in the United States. And so they were, they were wanting to address that, to speak in a Christian way about what the Bible says about these things. Well, what egalitarianism and feminism was, was doing was it was calling the Bible's picture of a, a loving leadership of a husband as uh, bad for women, you know, abusive, as you talked about, Denny, on the, the last episode in this series, you know, identified as patriarchy. Uh, as something that is inherently negative, uh, you know, vision for the home, and and with that promotion of that feminist egalitarianism came the very unraveling of of marriage, which is the bedrock of the home, which is the bedrock of of society at large. Yeah, there. What what they proclaimed in Danvers was that there was an ordering to the economy of the home, and latter part of the 20th century until now was undermining all of that widespread in the culture was undermining of that and basically treating men and women as interchangeable within marriage, which is not how God designed it. And when you live in a way that goes against God's design, it eventually brings unhappiness. And what interestingly, so that's, that's the third rationale. Let me do the fourth rationale before we have to finish here. But the fourth rationale says the widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood vocational homemaking and the many ministries historically performed by women. Now they're saying widespread ambivalence. Ambivalence is probably a lighter term than we would use now because Hmm. um, today it's, it's not just ambivalence it's in, in the culture. It's almost open hostility 
to the values of motherhood, vocational homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by women. In other words, traditional femininity is is sneered at today by mm-hmm. um, many in the culture, by many who hold to second wave feminist values and even those who hold to third wave uh, forms of feminism. They view some of what the Bible says about motherhood, about the ministry that God um, gifts women to fulfill within the church. They look at that and they they look down on it. And the reason is because um, within a feminist framework, if it's not the same thing as what the men do, then it's just less than. Right. If, in other words, if it's not, if men have a certain calling and women aren't able or allowed to inhabit that same calling, then it's less than. And so there is a devaluing of the unique giftings and callings that God puts on the lives of women, especially within the home and the church. And that hasn't stopped since 1987. It's only gotten more acute over the years. Which explains this interchangeability aspect that we've already talked about, that in order for, you know, women's equality to really take uh, in their mind, then women have to be able to do every single thing that a man can do, period. Um, that that notion of interchangeability, it really, it forces uh, a, a downplaying and a devaluation of the true differences between masculinity and femininity, between men and women, such that you can't recognize the fact that a woman's body is organized, you know, differently than a man, even uh, and especially around the reproductive capacities as a man and a woman in the home, um, and 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 that that trajectory is exactly what we see playing out today. We're gonna have to pull up uh, there on the rationales, and we'll pick up with rationale number five on the next episode. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.